0: Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into Scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big-girl pants, because here we go. Okay, so we are still in Chapter 1, but we're almost done. Aren't you so happy? Chapter 1, verse 43 is really where we are. And we just went through the fact that Jesus called Simon. And if you remember, he said, you are Simon, but you will be called Cephas, Peter. And we talked about the fact, isn't it wonderful that Jesus sees not only who we are, but who we actually can be. He doesn't just see actualities, he sees possibilities, and we talked about that last week, and we're going to see that even more. If you remember, it says that when he looked at Peter, it was a look that literally gazed into the very being of who he was, and we're going to see that he's going to do that again. And so he continues, um, he is calling his disciples, and we start with verse 43. It says, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. You seeing a theme there? Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Ooh, there's some richness in that paragraph. And so here we go. So Jesus goes to the area of the Galilee, and he runs into a man by the name of Philip. And what do we find out about him? Philip is from where? The same town as who? Andrew and Peter. So, to me, can you imagine as they're following, they run into Philip, they're chatting, hey, dude, what's going on? And you have this conversation. In the midst of this, Jesus turns to Philip and says, follow me. And that is all the information we are given in that scenario that Jesus personally invites Philip and he follows. But then we see, just like we saw in the paragraphs before, That Philip is so convinced that the first thing he does is he does what? He goes and shares. He goes and finds Nathaniel. And he says to Nathaniel, by the way, Nathaniel is also the Bartholomew of the other Gospels, in case you're searching for him. Okay? Nathaniel, Bartholomew. Remember, most often they had two names. Hello, Mary Shannon. I just just got that question today. So are you Shannon or are you Mary? Well, I'm both. Well, what do you go by? Well, I typically go by Shannon, okay? So here's the situation. So Nathanael, he goes to find Nathanael, and he says, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Could this description insinuate that Nathanael was very versed in the law? And the prophets, because it's very interesting how Philip presents this to Nathanael. Remember, when Andrew went to Simon Peter, he said, I have found the Christ. But here, Philip says, no, I have found the one that Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote about. Could it mean that maybe Nathanael was a diligent studier of the law? But yeah, it seems that Nathanael misses this altogether. And what part does he get stuck on? He is from Nazareth. The scriptures, by the way, um, the scriptures didn't say anything about the Messiah coming from Nazareth. It's very interesting, the Old Testament. And so he has no recollection in his Old Testament knowledge of the Messiah being predicted, that he would come from a town of Nazareth. Actually, the town of Nazareth didn't even really exist in the Old Testament. And so he's like, Nazareth? Are you kidding? What good can come of Nazareth? Now what you need to realize is Nathaniel's from Cana. We're about to be there in a minute for a a celebration, but Cana was like only nine miles from Nazareth, and if you think Nazareth is small, Cana's really small. But have you ever um, experienced the rivalry of small towns? I don't know about you, but I mean, my parents grew up in a really small town. We're talking about one stoplight, maybe. Did we have a stoplight? Oh, we didn't have a stoplight. No stoplight, okay? It was one main street. You knew everybody, and honestly, it was almost biblical because you knew the person by their parents and their grandparents and, you know, the whole generation. That's why when we tell a story, it has way too much detail because we want to make sure you know exactly who we're talking about. You know, oh, Joe, well, yeah, he's Charlie's son. Yeah, they lived out on Beecham Corner. You remember their aunt was so-and-so, and you're like, who cares? I don't even know these people. What did he do? Tell me the story, right? So you have this small town vibe, but you have this competition. So my parents grew up in a place called Manila, okay? They were very competitive with other small towns like maybe Monette, and they couldn't stand them. Is that correct? Leechful. They they couldn't stand Leechful. And so this is kind of the scenario. He's like, Nazareth. What good can come from Nazareth? I mean, you know what a rivalry is like, right? I don't even need to talk sports or something like that. And so bottom line, he is saying nothing important. I have no recollection in the Old Testament of the Messiah or the prophet saying the Messiah was going to come from a place called Nazareth. And on top of that, what good can come of Nazareth insinuating nothing important comes out of that place? Well, obviously, the Pharisees kind of had the same attitude about really the whole region of the Galilee because if you look in John chapter 7, there is a story in 752, you'll see it. There's a story about how when Nicodemus, do you remember him, one of the religious leaders, and he's the one Jesus is gonna talk to about being born again, but there was a, a point where he actually stood up for Jesus and their response to him was this, they said to him, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Are you backwards too? Really? Are you into that whole country bumpkin thing too? Nothing important comes out of that area. It's a real prejudice actually and uh, we're gonna come back to that idea but I, I wanna stick for one second on this idea of Nazareth. Because knowing that there's never, there's really no prophecy in the Old Testament about the Messiah coming from Nazareth, but yet you have in Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, he says this, and talking about Jesus, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken about the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. That's really interesting. Interesting. So what did they mean then if Nazareth really didn't exist? What did they mean by he would be called a Nazarene? Well, I think it could be. There's two suggestions. It could be this idea of lowly, of not having esteem, of a lack of importance, even an idea of of somewhat uh, poverty. Um, You see that in um, Isaiah 53.3 it says he was despised and rejected by men and they esteemed him not, okay? In Zechariah 9, it refers to him as things like riding on a donkey, which means basically he was arriving in very lowly fashion. So the whole idea of being called a Nazarene would be this idea of a lack of importance, not having any status. He was lowly and many prophets foretold that that is what the Messiah would be like. But it's also interesting, another idea, and trust me, smart people disagree about this. Um, The word Nazarene or Nazareth comes from a Hebrew root word that is natser. It's N-E-T-Z-E-R. N-E-T-Z-E-R. And it actually means, or one of its meanings is branch. Okay, so it's the word for branch. Let me read you some scripture from the prophets. Jeremiah 23, five through six. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right to the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the same by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous savior. In Isaiah 11, the Messiah is called the shoot of Jesse. Why? Well, what happened to the tree of Jesse? What, Jesse produced who? King David. And then eventually, right, the, basically the monarchy was cut off. But yet David is, has been promised that his kingship would be eternal. And so there's an idea of at some point, someone from the line of David or a shoot, a new growth, or a branch will come out of the stump of Jesse, okay? And that is what it is talking about, Isaiah 11. Zechariah 3, within verses 8 through 10 that we're going to come back to in a minute, says that I will bring my servant the branch, And so you have this idea that he will be called a Nazarene or he is from Nazareth, this idea that yes, he is not gonna be highly esteemed, but you also have this idea of could it be that he will be called a Nazarene because he is the branch, he is the promised branch to come. Well, Philip didn't argue. He just said, come and see. I think that's awesome. Do you really win many people through argument? You really don't. And especially today. Man, we are set in our ways and we are on our sides and we are in our camps. You are not going to get a whole lot further with argument. Instead, he says, come and see. He's already learned from Jesus. Nathaniel already had his mind made up that any man from Nazareth was of no worth. No worth. No one one would convince him otherwise. He must see Jesus himself. The only thing that would change his mind is an experience with this man. Can I tell you that's the only thing that's gonna change prejudice? We make them all the time. I'm telling you, I did it the other day. I'm not even gonna tell you the details because I'm too embarrassed to tell you. But I did. I had a preconceived idea. I bought something on Uffer Up. And honestly, I bought something on OfferUp. I bought a piece of furniture for 10 bucks. I was like, really, 10 bucks? This is amazing score. But I saw the area I was going, all right? I saw um, the situation in the area, and I literally called someone in advance, and I said, I'm going to this area. Nobody knows I'm going, so I need somebody to know I'm going because I could disappear, and nobody would even care or know where, where I am, so I'm going to this area because I'm buying a $10 piece of furniture. I get to this area. It is the cutest little hub of an area you've ever seen. I met the nicest people you have ever known, but I was convinced by their address and by the amount of the, that I was about to pay for this piece of furniture that I was going to go to a meth lab and I was going to be killed. <laughs> am I the only one that ever makes pre, has just like prejudgments? We do it all the time. We do it based on economics, based on addresses, based on the color of someone's skin, based on their gender. We even make uh, judgments based on mental health. I cannot tell you how many times people would say back in the day when I dealt with anxiety, oh girl, you just need to pray more and talk to Jesus. I wanted to slap them upside their head. Do you not think I'm talking to Jesus? Do you not think I'm searching the word to know what in the world? Why am I coming apart? Why am I falling apart? Now, look, I mean, now we're having a whole series on mental health because we realize that, hey, something's going on. There is an issue. And sometimes you make all of these judgments about people until your kid has a problem, right? Till you go through it. I did it. I was that young judgmental mother. I'm telling you I was. That Bible teacher who had it all figured out, who was slightly judgmental, who would say, well, this needs to happen and this needs to happen and I'm protecting my kids and can I just tell you, boy, the, all that went out the window, right? Be careful because most of the time we have these judgments and the fact is no one's going to argue you out of right and wrong. But what happens is when you begin to experience for yourself, you start to change a little bit. And you realize life is not so black and white. Grace is messy, right? And so Philip's not going to sit and argue with Nathaniel. He's like, all right, dude, can anything good come from Nazareth? Come and see. And this is what Jesus says this is so good right next, okay? He says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Let me give you some word pictures here. The name Israel means contend, persist, persevere, prevail. Do you remember that? You need to be thinking when you first were introduced to that name, In Genesis, there was a name change, right? From Jacob to Israel, one who contends with God, one who prevails. Indeed, that word indeed literally means genuinely. He's being serious. In truth, actually. So when he sees Nathaniel coming, he's like, no, really, actually, in truth, this is an Israelite in every sense of the name. And then he says, in whom there is no, your Bible might say guile or deceit. All right? <laughs> Let me read you some from the story of Jacob in Genesis 27, 35 through 36. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob, what does Jacob mean? Deceit, trickster, con man, grabber of the hill. For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? You know the story. So in other words, um, this is kind of what he's saying. He's saying, behold, one who is true to the name of Israel, and in whom there is no Jacob. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. What in the world just happened? What was so transforming about that? I saw you. He went from, dude, ain't nothing good coming from Nazareth. Are you kidding me? To two sentences, I saw you, and bam, all of a sudden, he says that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is the King of Israel. Okay, you need to read your Bible like this. What happened? That should make you go, hmm, and then you start to dig. So is there something in the words which act as some great revelation to Nathaniel? There must have been something there. Were they a proof that the presence before him could read the very depths of his own thoughts? He says, I saw you under the shade tree, under the fig tree. That is where Jews were accustomed to retire for meditation and prayer. Jews would go under a shade tree. We can can relate to that here in Phoenix. You go somewhere in the cool, you go in the shade tree under the fig tree. That's literally what that means. And they would go and they would meditate and they would pray and they would read the law. All right, the first five books and the prophets. I just wonder if he was under that fig tree, could it be possible that he was reading the story of Jacob? That he was meditating on those scriptures. Was this the portion he was reading? I just wonder. In that portion, it's a story about how Jacob, remember, wrestled with God, and trust me, he wrestled with God before he actually wrestled with God. Do you remember? He left for his life because he had been the trickster, and he he ends up sleeping with his head on his stone, and he has a dream, and we're gonna look at that in just a second. And he goes and he works for uh, Laban, right? So Jacob the trickster got tricked, and eventually he comes back, and on the way back he has one serious wrestling match with God, and at the end he finally does what? Instead of trying to control, to fight it out, he surrenders, and yes, he walks away with the limp, but it makes me wonder if Nathan had been wrestling something under that same fig tree, well, not same, under his fig tree, and I just wonder if Nathan was at a point where he needed to surrender. Also, at the end of it, do you remember what Jacob said? Jacob got to see God face to face. Genesis 32, 24th 24 and 30, okay? It says this in verse 24, and Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. And then in verse 30, it says, so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face and have been delivered. I have seen God face to face and have been delivered. And now, Philip is staring not Philip. Nathaniel is staring face to face at who? Jesus. He says to him, I saw you. I can't tell you what that means to Nathaniel, but I can imagine if I had been in a place, if I had been studying, whatever that place is, you would remember. And he looks at you And he says, I saw you when you were on your patio that morning, sitting in your chair, and I saw you. Professor Proverbs uh, did a sermon on this one time, and he touched on this, I saw you. And I remember him reading these things, and it, it touched me. He says this, I saw you a year ago when, fill in the blank, I got this. I saw those of you who lost loved ones, and how broken your heart was and still is. I saw you as you wonder why, why bother, as you sit in cynicism thinking all this church stuff is malarkey, I saw you. That's okay, I see you and I still love you. There's still a spark in you that is drawn to make sense of it all. And I see you, the one who has made a mess of life of attempts at faith to be the perfect Christian. I see you. Stop trying to be perfect. I see the fabric of sincerity within your heart. I see you, I see you. I've seen you all along. It reminds me of Leah when she finally has Reuben. Do you remember what she names him or what Reuben means? It says basically, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction. It means to see, okay? To see, why? She's saying, finally, somebody what? sees me. So whatever it was that Nathaniel was dealing with under that fig tree, Nathaniel knew it, and who else? Jesus. And when he looked at them and they caught eyes, he is saying to him, oh, Nathaniel, I saw you. I saw you. I know what you're struggling with. Verse 50, Jesus answered him, Behold, I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. <laughs> Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Where is that in Scripture? Same story. With Jacob, right? Jacob is fleeing for his life. He is asleep with his head on his stone, and he's, he has a vision. And the vision is of a ladder that attaches heaven to earth, and the angels are ascending and descending on that ladder. And Jesus is literally saying, oh, you will see it. You will see the heavens open up and a connection between heaven and earth. But, buddy, it's not a ladder. Who is it? What does he call himself? The son of man, he says, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. What did God tell Jacob in that moment? He said some things. He confirmed the covenant with Abraham, with him, in this dream. He said, I am with you. I will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, and I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Could it be that when Nathaniel was wrestling with God under that fig tree, that that's what he needed? He needed to be reminded? Maybe he was reading the messianic passages of the prophets, wanting to know, where is this Messiah to come? And he needed to remember that God is a promise-keeping God. And here, right here, we see that God made a promise to Jacob, and he kept it. But here, he is saying to Nathaniel, listen. That was a ladder that connected the heaven to the earth. I'm the ladder. I am the connector. Who am I? I'm the son of man. Where do you see that reference? Daniel 7, 13 through 14. If you're not a good note taker, at least write out the references next to the phrases. Like where it says son of man, write Daniel 7, 13 through 14. You can go back later. This is a messianic prophecy right here. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Do you see all the crumbs in this section we've been reading? He literally looks at him and says, Indeed, truly, authentically, this is in every true sense of the name an Israelite, and there is no Jacob in him. I saw you meditating under the fig tree. I know what you're wrestling with. I am a promise keeping God. I'm here. Oh, that changed your life? Wait till you get a load of me. Because you're gonna see the heavens open up and the angels ascending and descending on the son of man. Because all dominion has been given to who? Me. Oh my gosh, do y'all see the crumbs? It has incredible rich meaning. Now I wanna show you something I've never seen before. And this week I was like, oh my gosh. See, this is what exciting. You never know it all. And honestly, I don't even know what this means exactly, but I think it's really exciting. So if you go back to Zechariah, I want you to notice all the similarities in this verse, Zechariah 3, 8 through 10. You can go back and look at it later, and you can just write down kind of the key words that interested me, and you can study it on your own. It may mean nothing. It may mean everything. It says this, Here now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Why do we have a connection with our story? Nazareth, Nazarene. For behold, on the stone, that just interested me because previously in the, in the paragraph before, what happened with the name of Simon I just found that interesting. That I have set before Joshua on a single stone with seven eyes, meaning you can see all the nations. I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity, that word is also guile, of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his fig tree. I don't know, that's exciting to me. It's talking about the coming of the Messiah, the branch, right? And then one day he will remove guile, deceit, and everybody will come together resting underneath the fig tree. Maybe he was studying Zechariah 3, eight through 10, but whatever it was, I am telling you this meeting, This experience with Jesus convinced this man wholeheartedly, the one that was in every sense of the word a true Israelite, after this encounter with Jesus, he says, you are the son of God and you are the king of Israel. He is 100% convinced. John chapter one is full, you think? Think about it. How many times have we met together? This is our fourth time. In this chapter, the testimony that has come forth to you would convict anybody. It wasn't just three. We've had literally, I think, five or six testimonies in this first chapter, if I'm not mistaken. We have John the Apostle saying, listen, he is the lifelight. He is the Logos. He was with God, distinct from God, but he was God. Before the beginning began, he was there, and all things were made by him and through him. Life comes from him. And he said, if you don't believe me, ask John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And don't just trust me. I'm telling you, I saw it with my own eyes. The one who sent me to baptize says, when you see the one that the spirit comes down on, he's the one. I saw it. This is it. And then after that, we have Andrew who says, we have found the Messiah. We have Philip who says, we have found him of whom Moses wrote about in the law and the prophets wrote. And we have Nathaniel saying what? You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. In one chapter, what more verbal testimony could you want? Jesus is God. These things I have written that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing in his name, you will have life. We're going to see all kinds of themes emerge in the book of John. We're going to see everything that was old become new. We're gonna see water turned to wine. We're gonna see an old temple replaced by a new temple. We're gonna see an old birth replaced by a new birth. We're gonna see old water replaced by living water. We're gonna see an old way of worship replaced by a new. Chapter two is going to be the beginning of signs pointing to who Jesus is. It makes total sense to me that Jesus would begin his ministry at a wedding. How about you? Well, how's it all gonna be completed at the end of days? A wedding. The wedding supper of the Lamb. He begins his public ministry at a wedding, and at the end of the day, the days, we will be celebrating together in a beautiful wedding celebration. So I I cannot imagine a better way to start. Chapter two. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Let me tell you what, weddings were a major event of the day. Big, big deal. Actually, it was a week-long celebration involving pretty much the whole community. And what kind of community was Cana? Small. This is a big deal. Everybody knew about it. They've been involved in this thing from the get-go. They know these two people. They are so excited. They are looking forward to it. And now the day finally comes. Are you kidding? It's a big deal. It is the talk of this little town, and they have been waiting for it. I want you to understand how a Jewish wedding kind of takes place. And since I brought up the fact that Jesus' ministry starts with the wedding and at the end of days, it will end with the wedding, I'm gonna show you how this wedding um, ceremony also represents us in Christ, okay? I'm just gonna give you some references, read you some scripture. Number one, the bride would be chosen, okay? The father chose the bride. Now, in, the, in our day, We don't do it that way. Although in some ways I'd kind of like to go back to that. (laughs) Do I hear any amens? I could have done a great job. I knew exactly what I knew what they wanted, but especially I knew what they needed. Because I'm the one who raised them and ruined them. (laughs) So I mean I could at least apologize to the person when I picked them because I'm gonna say, here's the deal. Here's what they are. I mean, good luck, you might change some things, but my experience has been you don't change a whole lot. So you better start out like you can hold out because this is the way it's gonna be, (laughs) right? And so I think that would be quite awesome. Okay, we don't do that anymore. But back then, the father chose the bride. So this, it would have been an arrangement. Um, And so let me read to you Ephesians 1, 4. For he, meaning God, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love. Do you realize the Bible says that we were chosen? That's a pretty amazing thing, and it can cause a lot of confusion. I don't, I don't think you need to tarry there about you know free will and election. I think you just need to be shocked you were chosen. That's the way I feel about it. I don't know who the elect is, so I'm gonna nominate everybody I see. That's not my problem, okay? But I do know this, the fact that he chose me blows my ever-living mind because the fact is he chose me knowing everything about me. Psalms 139 says he knows it all. So your father or Jesus' father, God, chose you knowing everything about you, every skeleton in your closet, and I'm gonna tell you what, he chose you anyway because he's just freaking crazy about you, okay? It is a love that he feels like is worth dying over. Can I just say that? Second, the bride price would be agreed upon and paid, okay? So they're gonna, they're gonna barter back and forth, this bride price, and it did a couple of things. It showed the worth of the bride to the groom, but it also show, showed the groom's ability to provide for the bride. It was a big deal, Okay, and so it was agreed upon between the fathers. Listen to this. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed or purchased from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Do you realize he paid the bride price? in his own blood, because he thought you were worth dying for. It showed your worth, and it showed his ability to provide. Then there would be a pledge of love and a commitment and a gift. So he, the, the groom would make a pledge of love, um, and he would give his commitment And then, because at this moment, he was gonna return to his father's house and he was gonna begin to build on a room or build a place, a home for them. But he would leave her with a gift so that she could remember his undying love and commitment while he was away at work. Pledge, John 1 through three. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. What is he saying? Listen, I love you. I'm making my pledge of commitment. I'm gonna return to my father's house and I'm gonna build you on a room. But I'm gonna tell you what, I'm always working. I do not sleep nor slumber. I will be at work, and I will be committed, and you could trust that if I've gone away to prepare a room for you, I will come back for you. Just to make sure that you understand my commitment, let me leave you a gift, John 14, 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. 2 Corinthians 1, 22 says he set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. You have been chosen. You have been paid for by the precious blood of the lamb. He has made his commitment. And just so you know, he has left a guarantee, a deposit, a gift inside of you, his Holy Spirit, so that you can be assured that he will never leave you alone. And one day he will come back for you. And then we have the betrothal period where you're away, you're engaged, right? You don't have any intercourse, but for all legal purposes, they were married. They were committed. One belonged to the other. 2 Corinthians eleven two 2 says this, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Ephesians 5, 31 through 32 For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. Why? Because I'm talking about Christ and the church. So bottom line, he's like, stay faithful. Stay faithful. We have fully committed to Christ. We are betrothed to an amazing bridegroom. I love the story Max Lucado wrote. So I'm going to read it to you because I think it is fantastic. He tells a story about a prince and a peasant girl who fall in love. This, uh, it's kind of, it's not hard to understand. On the one hand, there is a prince who literally had the world at his disposal. There has never been a more perfect specimen of a man that ever lived. Nothing about him was common. You wouldn't be exaggerated to say he was the perfect catch. On the other hand, there's a peasant girl. She is nothing more than average. At her best, she is plain, but at her worst, she's just plain ugly. I didn't write that. (laughs) Max Lucado wrote that. (laughs) There are times when she is cranky and moody, and she rarely ever achieves all she could. To look at her from anyone else's eyes, you would never believe she was worth much. But if if you could see her through the eyes of the prince, you would believe that she is to die for. Because the prince determined that he couldn't bear to live without her, he asked her to be his bride. The angels in heaven listened expectantly as she accepted his proposal. The prince promised his bride that he would come back for her soon, and the peasant-turned-princess pledged to be faithful until his return. To this point, the story could be any of a number of fairy tales, but now the plot takes a bizarre twist. You would expect the bride to be always thinking about the coming wedding, but she rarely ever mentions it. You would think that her every waking moment would be lived out in anticipation and preparation for the coming of her prince. However, by the way she lives, you wouldn't even know she's the bride to a perfect prince. More frequently than not, you can't even tell the difference between the bride and any other peasant girl in the village. There are even times when she can be seen flirting with other men of the village in broad daylight, and who knows what she's doing when nobody else is around. Can you imagine a peasant girl fortunate enough to be the object of a perfect prince's eternal love? You would expect her to be captivated by his love and filled with a sense of wonder that she was fortunate enough to be loved by him. You would think that she would be careful to remain pure in anticipation of the return of her royal groom. Instead, to look at her, you might wonder if she ever remembers she's engaged at all. How could a peasant girl forget about her prince? Is it possible for a bride to forget about her groom? Can I tell you the answer? Yes, it is possible. I'm gonna tell you right now, if the wedding was dependent on the peasant girl, the wedding would never take place. But praise God, the wedding is not dependent on the peasant girl. It's dependent on the groom, on the bridegroom. I'm so thankful Because when I am not faithful, he remains faithful. His return, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus... That you do not, uh, that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Ugh. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Oh, what a beautiful day. The groom would finally prepare the place And when it was all said and done, the father would be like, go get your bride. And when he did, he would come through the streets with his groomsmen, and they would be shouting and the blowing of the shofar. And the girl would know that he was coming, but she wouldn't know when, so she was to always be ready. And the whole town was involved in this celebration. Nobody missed it. You know, it's unbelievable. I I remember when Zach was a little boy, I didn't plan on feeling this or reading this, but when he was a little boy, he was ex- obsessed with flying. Obsessed. We called him Captain Underwear because he would come in the door of the house and he would strip down to his tidy whities and he would put on this red cape and he would fly everywhere. I mean, he would jump off the couch, he would jump off, you name it, he just, in his white underwear with his red cape. I mean, I have pictures, I I would have brought it, but I didn't know. And I remember one time he was sitting with me in church and the pastor was talking about the rapture or something. And he read this and it says, and we will be caught up with him in the air. The trumpet will sound and we will be caught. The dead in Christ will rise. (laughs) And I remember Zachary like, I didn't even know he's paying attention. He's a little guy. And he tugged on me and I go, yeah. And he goes, we're gonna fly. And I'm like, yeah, we're going to fly. And I never knew how much this verse would mean to me until now that the dead in Christ will rise first. And when we are called up, we will meet them in the air. And it says, listen, therefore encourage each other with these words. We have hope. Thereafter that will be the greatest celebration you can ever imagine in your life that will conclude in the consummation of a marriage. It was a highly anticipated event. The wedding was in Cana. It's where Nathaniel was from. So this was a big event for everyone involved and they were all invited. They were probably either related or uh, really close friends. Uh, because we know that Mary was working behind the scenes because she knew that what happened. The wine ran out. Did I even read you the story? Well, probably not. Um, I don't know why I didn't. But we're gonna find out in just a second that the wine ran out. Uh, Some people laugh and say, oh, well, why did the wine run out? Because Jesus just happened to be there with his six disciples at the time and, you know, seven unexpected guests who... uh, a wedding on a budget, you know, that could be a problem. Maybe the reason they ran out of wine is because Jesus and all of his buddies showed up and they weren't expecting that. I don't know about that, but I do know this, you would have to be invited. And if you wanna um, find the scripture for that, Revelations 19, six through nine, you do not get into the wedding supper of the lamb without an invitation, can I say. I would have loved to see Jesus at this wedding. I think he was fun. I think he was laughing and dancing and enjoying his disciples. I do not think he was a spoiler of a party. I do not think he was a dud. I do not think he had an attitude of judgment. I think people liked to be around him and they wanted him around. And I think if there is always someone, speaking of judgment, if you have an attitude of judgment, nobody's going to get it right for you. You will always find something wrong, can I just tell you? Ask the Pharisees. They looked at John the Baptist and thought he, because he did not eat or drink or have any fun, they thought he was possessed by a demon. They looked at Jesus over here, who was enjoying life, and they called him a glutton and a drunkard. Well, make up your stinking mind, right? But I'm going to tell you, when people have an attitude of judgment, they can find anything they want to judge, And so I see these disciples, they're enjoying him. Two of them followed John the Baptist. You want to talk about extremes? They're like, wow, this is fun. This dude eats more than locusts and honey. (laughs) He smiles like he's not, you know, he's kind of laid back. Come and see, come and see me, come and be with me. That's what he was like. I would have totally loved, and I'm going to tell you what, he celebrated marriage. I just wonder if he just looks at what is going on and he's like, yep, this is where it's all gonna end. It's worth it. It's gonna be worth it. It's gonna be worth it. It's gonna be love and a celebration and a coming together. It's worth it. This is worth it. Because this was the beginning of his ministry, he knew what was coming. He would have to pay the price. So at the end of days, the ultimate marriage celebration could happen. I just always wonder what was going through the God-man's mind at events. I think he longed for the day that this was the celebration. I have three minutes, so I'm not even going to talk about the fact that in verse 3 it does say, The wine ran out. And the mother of Jesus comes to him and says, they have no wine. Oh, there's a problem. And next week when we get together, we're gonna see this was no little problem. This was a catastrophe. This would have been your worst nightmare, okay? The wine has run out. We're like, big deal. Go down to BevMo and and go get some more. No, that is not the situation. They have been preparing for this wedding, who knows how long? And if it and if they run out of wine, you are talking about the most shameful, degrading event you have ever seen in your life in a small town, they would never live this down. Never. Who understands the fact that when a small town gets a hold of something about shame that they can run their mouths? Let me tell you, Mary, the mother of Jesus, might relate right? And so when this problem happens, she's like, oh, no, no. And she comes to Jesus. We'll see what happens. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to keep you for one minute because I want you to tell me one takeaway. I want you to shout it out like popcorn. Okay. So as we're praying, you be thinking about that. Lord, thank you so much for today. We love you dearly. May these words go down in our heart and produce fruit. Lord, I pray that they sit under the fig tree all week long and meditate on these truths and apply them to their life. We love you in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you wanna connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.